So there's a, there's a lot of important things that we uh, should talk about as Christians. There's a lot of important questions that we might ask as followers of Jesus. One of those uh, most important questions is, um, why did Jesus go to the cross? Why did Jesus come to die? What's going on with that? Uh, John Piper, who is a theologian and pastor, author, he's written a lot of books that have been a blessing to me over the years. He, he, he has a book called 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die. It's a little book. It's kind of a devotional book. Each reason that he gives is about a page long, and you could read one a day if you were uh, interested. And, and he has 50 reasons. And at the beginning of each reason, he uses at least one scripture to kind of launch from, sometimes as many as three verses. And over the course of the book, he lists 87 scriptures in his 50 reasons why Jesus came to die. Out of those 87 scriptures, nine of them come from one of the gospels. Out of those nine, three of them come from Matthew, and out of those three, only one of them is a direct uh, statement about why Jesus came to die. The other two, Piper kind of theologically infers. And that one statement is from our passage today. I find that really, really interesting because when you get to Paul's letters, when you get to Peter's letters, when you get to uh, the book of Hebrews, the books that, the letters that John writes, there's all of this information, all of this data, all of this explanation about why Jesus went to the cross. If you've read Ephesians or Galatians or Romans, you know that Paul lays out these very complex, in-depth arguments about what the cross accomplished and how Jesus defeated the power of death and conquered sin and rose from the dead and ascended to heaven and rules the world. And there's all of these things that he says about the cross and resurrection of Christ. But Jesus doesn't teach that way. It's interesting to me that, that Jesus doesn't really teach like Paul teaches. And I don't want to, I love Paul. We should read Paul. Paul's got an important role to play in the parts of Scripture that he creates. But Jesus is a very different kind of teacher than the Apostle Paul. Jesus doesn't give big lectures with rhetorical flourish and argumentation most of the time, Jesus tells stories, and Jesus, in the book of Matthew, as we've been going through, he's mentioned to his disciples, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die. I'm going to be turned over to my enemies. I'm going to be crucified, but three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. But he doesn't really talk about why that's going to happen, except in this passage right here. Jesus' most vivid answer to why did you go to the cross is this passage. And when Jesus teaches his disciples, he doesn't give them a lecture, he gives them a meal. This meal that we're gonna take a look at, this Passover meal that Jesus reshapes is the most fully developed explanation from Jesus about why he is going to the cross. And I think that's really important because if, for many of us, we've grown up in uh, Christian traditions that have 
participated in the communion meal, but honestly, in my experience, have really minimized it. Part of that is because historically, if you have a Catholic background or if you know uh, about the Catholic church, they have taken the communion meal to places that I think probably they shouldn't have. They've made the communion meal something that it isn't. And so what's a good Protestant do? Anything the Catholic church does, we do the exact opposite, right? Because that's how we, we uh, develop our beliefs. Whatever they're for, we're against. That's kind of a joke. Not really. It's kind of. Um, <laughs> And so we've taken communion and we made a, a thing that sometimes we do. And I, I, I uh, was a part of a church for many years and we celebrated communion monthly, but sometimes like the ushers would forget and we'd, it, we'd just miss it that month. And, and it was just something that we just, we're supposed to do it because the Bible says we're supposed to do it, but nobody really understands why. And, and it, it's, it's not that big deal. For a certain amount of time, I was a part of a, a church that calls itself non-sacramental. What that means is they didn't celebrate uh, baptism or communion. They had long historical reasons for that, um, but they created other rituals that they would participate in for their own denomination that was uh, intended to bring them closer to Christ, but they, they didn't celebrate communion at all. And I think, though, that, that based on the fact that this is what Jesus is doing to teach his disciples why he's going to die, when, when we don't experience this meal, we're not just missing an interesting object lesson, we're missing something that's really powerful and essential to our understanding of the gospel. By weekly participating in this ritual that we do, this communion meal that we take every week, it connects us to Jesus' most explicit teaching on his death. And so as we take a look at this passage, just keep that in mind that there's something going on here that's important and that's meaningful. Artist Mako Fujimura uh, writes in his book, Art and Faith, he says, the Eucharist relies on us to be culture makers. Bread and wine are both realities that would not exist on their own, but earthly materials must be cultivated by human beings and require much time to create. In other words, just by wheat and grapes naturally growing, neither of these elements of the Eucharist will be created. Human beings, through their toil and over a period of time experimenting to perfect the craft, have made bread and wine. And what Fujimura is um, getting at is that when Jesus creates this object lesson that he intends to teach his people about the reason for his death, he uses elements that people have a hand in creating. He doesn't just use grapes. He doesn't just use wheat. He allows people, and he didn't do it directly. It's just part of the way that things were at the time. But people worked and made the bread. People harvested the grapes and smashed them and fermented them and bottled them. And there was all of this human ingenuity and process involved in creating these symbols. And Fujimura's point in that is that People that engage in making culture is what he calls it, artists and engineers and craftsmen, they have an essential part to play in the world. They teach us something about the world that we can't get from books and lectures and podcasts. And John already talked about it, but this is one of the reasons why we've decided for the Sundays of Lent this year 
There's six Sundays of Lent, and I asked some of the artists in our community, I said, I want you guys to think about the communion meal. I even gave them some books to read, because that's just how, that's my love language. Um, And I said, "These, these are all about communion. These are all about the Lord's table, the bread and the cup. And I want you to create something that helps us, those of us that aren't artists, those of us that aren't artisans, to understand communion a little differently. And so starting next Sunday, for the next six weeks, a different artist is going to present something. Some things are visual, some things are going to be, there's a film being produced. Um, It's going to be really fun and really cool. And for a lot of us who aren't naturally artists, it's going to hopefully unlock some understandings about what communion means that maybe you've never thought about before. So, verse 26. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to his disciples and said, take and eat it, this is my body. So, we talked about this last week, but Jesus and disciples are having a Passover meal. It's a day early. Passover is on Friday, but they're celebrating on Thursday because Jesus knows he's not going to be here on Friday to celebrate the meal. And the Passover meal was done usually with a family. Jesus is doing it with his closest friends. And it was a yearly celebration that connected the Israelites back to the people of God coming out of Exodus. If you've read the story of the book of Exodus, the people of Israel are in bondage in Egypt. They've been oppressed. They've been enslaved. They've been um, murdered. Pharaoh has, has mercilessly killed their young boy children in order to control their population. And God appoints this man, Moses, to come and deliver his people from Egypt. And there's a whole, it's, it's an amazing story. If you've watched the Ten Commandments or the Prince of Egypt, you can see it fold out there. There's plagues. God flexes his muscles against the gods of Egypt, the false gods of Egypt. And Pharaoh finally lets the people go after God destroys the firstborn sons of the Egyptians. And they leave Egypt in this great caravan, and they go out to a mountain called Sinai, where God meets them at the top of the mountain, delivers them the law, and makes a covenant, a promise with them. He says, I want you to be my special people. I want your relationship with me to spread around all the world, and I want to let everyone know who I am through you. And every year, the Jewish people would participate in this Passover meal. They would rehearse the events of the deliverance from Egypt. And the Passover meal would make the statement, you are the people that God rescued from Egypt. You are directly connected to the people that God delivered and made his own. You are still his people. You are still intended to be a blessing for the whole world. And so the Passover, was, it was a ritual. It was something that was done in many, many families year after year after year. Jesus would have grown up hearing probably his father lead a Passover meal. The disciples would have grown up with their fathers leading a Passover meal. Some of the disciples, Peter, he had a family. He probably led a Passover meal himself. And the Passover meal generally starts with one of the children Giving, being given the responsibility to ask a question. 
And the child that's chosen that year asks the question, what makes this night different from all other nights? And at that prompting, the head of the family, the father usually, would work through all the different parts of the meal, the bread and the wine and the lamb and the bitter herbs and the vegetable dipped. And each one would represent a point in the story as the people of Israel journeyed out of Egypt, being given freedom by God. And so Jesus, who is leading this Passover meal, he gets to the part about the bread. And if you've read the story, the the children of Israel are in a hurry. They've been released from captivity. Pharaoh said, enough is enough. I don't want to suffer anymore. Get out of here. And so they all have to leave. And they don't have time to adequately add yeast, leaven, to their bread to let it rise to punch it down, to let it rise again. If, you're a, if you bake bread, you know how this works. And so their bread is unleavened because they're in such a hurry. And so they leave with matzah, flat, flat bread. And so Jesus lifts up the bread and he breaks it. And Jesus has a script to follow. He knows what the script is. All the disciples know what the script is. They would have heard it over and over and over again. He is to break the bread and say, this is the bread of affliction which our ancestors ate when they came out from the land of Egypt. Everybody knows he's going to say this. Everybody, it's like having a birthday party and somebody just started singing happy birthday. Everybody knows the words to that song and everybody joins in. Everyone around the table knows exactly what Jesus is going to do, but he doesn't do it. Jesus says, Take and eat. This is my body. And I don't know if we really understand how shocking that would have been to this group of men. One of the things that we as modern Americans don't do very well is ritual. I know some of you have some family rituals, some things, some traditions that you do every year, but by and large, our culture is pretty bad at that. Um, I didn't watch the Super Bowl last week. It's, we, we have a no Super Bowl policy in my house because of my wife's childhood trauma. <laughs> you can ask her dad about that later. Um, uh, but I was on Twitter during the Super Bowl, and some people were tweeting about the national anthem. And so I looked it up. And I guess uh, the Eric Church, who was performing the national anthem, he did kind of a country national anthem. Did anybody see that? Some of you. And, and the, the thoughts online were kind of like, well, that's weird, isn't it? Everybody knows that the gold standard in U.S. national anthems is, is Whitney Houston, right? Like, that's kind of the undisputed truth about our national anthem. And so anytime somebody does the national anthem a little strange, it kind of throws us. But what if the performer of the national anthem came onto the field and the... the this uh, announcer said, and now to perform the national anthem. And they, they sang like Blank Space by Taylor Swift, or You Can't Touch This by MC Hammer, or some other bizarre pop song. Everybody would be like, what are you doing? What, is, what sort of weird statement are you trying to make? This is, that's not how you do that. That's not what we do here. People would be offended. They would be shocked. 
Jesus is doing something orders of magnitude weirder right now. He's taking this time-honored tradition that every Jewish family knows by heart. This is the bread of affliction which our ancestors ate when they came out from the land of Egypt. He's taking this thing that makes the bread about the people of God and he's making it about him. He's completely subverting the Passover. He's taking it over and shifting its meaning not to be about the history of God's people, but to be about himself. The disciples don't say anything because they're smart in this moment. But they all must have been shocked. What's, what's he doing? What's going on here? Then he took the cup in verse 27. And after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, again, Jesus had a predetermined script, a line that he was to speak when he passed the cup of wine around, but he doesn't say it. He says, this is my blood of the covenant, and instantly everyone in that room would have understood what he was talking about. Listen to Exodus 24. Moses came and told the people all the commands of the Lord and all the ordinances. And then all the people responded with a single voice, we will do everything that the Lord has commanded. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord, and he rose early the next morning and set up an altar and 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel at the base of the mountain. Then he sent out young Israelite men, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half the blood and set it in basins, and the other half of the blood he splattered on the altar. Then he took the covenant scroll and read it aloud to the people. And they responded, we will do and obey all that the Lord has commanded. Moses took the blood, splattered it on the people, and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you concerning all these words. So what's happening here is the Israelites have gathered at the base of this mountain, and God has shown up on the top, and he's delivered this list of of, uh, rules and laws and ways of life to the people, and he's made some promises. He said, you'll be my people, I will take care of you, I will make you a light to the nations, and this is how I want you to order your society, this is how I want you to live, this is what's good and true and wise, and I want you to be people like this. And so Moses, he reads all of these things to the people. And they say, we will do it. We're going to obey everything that the Lord commanded. Now, it turns out they don't do that. But this is a covenant ceremony. There's a sacrifice involved. Because during in a, uh, an ancient covenant, they'd kill an animal for a couple reasons. One, because animals were expensive. You want to make a promise to me? You want to show how much you mean to, about this promise? You want to show how much you care about this covenant? Let's kill a bull. Bulls are expensive. Put your money where your mouth is. The other thing about killing an animal is it's kind of like a, this is what's going to happen to you if you break the covenant, kind of like veiled threat. Uh, and Both of those things are going on here. The Israelites know that they are giving their lives to the Lord, and the Lord in return is going to care for them and be their God. And and Moses says, 
This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you concerning all these words. And so when Jesus says, 1,500 years later, this cup, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. They all know what he's doing. He's reinstituting the covenant. He's changing the covenant that their people had walked under for a thousand years. He's reshaping their relationship with God, and he's saying, it runs through me. Last week, we talked about sin. We talked about all the broken parts in our lives, the things that don't work right, the things that we go like, oh, I can't believe I'm like that. The things we, we see in ourselves that are just, are just evil, that are just awful, and the things that we see in the world that are wicked, the ways that our relationships don't work, the ways that our hearts are disfigured. And Jesus says, forgiveness comes through him. And in some sense, he's, he says, take this cup and drink it. And you're bringing my blood into your life. I'm doing the work of the covenant and applying it to you. See, for generations, the Passover meal identifies the Jewish person with the benefits of Egypt. By eating the Passover, they were constantly reminded that we are God's people. We have been rescued from slavery. We have been brought into the promised land. We have covenanted with Yahweh, and He has promised to be ours forever. But eating the Last Supper identifies the disciples with the benefits of the death of Christ. Jesus says that he is going to the cross. And these men that participate in this meal are going to benefit from what he does there. The Jewish people of the first century, they didn't cross the Red Sea with Moses. They weren't enslaved in Egypt. They didn't hear the voice of God on Sinai, but the Passover meal connected them to that first generation that did. And the disciples, and even you and I, if we call ourselves Christians, if we have pledged our allegiance to Christ, we didn't suffer with Jesus on the cross, but we are connected to the benefits of that suffering Look at verse 29. But I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So the Passover is a celebration. It's a celebration of victory. It's a celebration of freedom. It's a celebration of adoption into God's family. All of these things the Jewish people relied on for their relationship with God. They had been given special privileged position in the kingdom of God. And they were reminded of it every Passover. But Jesus says that I'm not going to eat this again until everything is made new. Until everything is transformed. Until my kingdom is fully come. Because there's going to be a day 
when we will all experience victory from sin and death, freedom from oppression, and an understanding of our adoption into God's family. All of that will be complete one day. And Jesus says, when that's complete, I'm going to eat this meal with you again. It's kind of like when you plant a tree. If you, if you have an avocado pit and you plant it in North Idaho, nothing will happen. But if you, if you are somewhere else, warmer, and you plant it in the ground, you're going to get an avocado plant. Because everything required of that tree and its fruit is dormant inside the seed. And Paul, in one of his very lengthy explanations of Jesus' death and resurrection in 1 Corinthians, he describes death as a seed. He says, you plant a seed, and the seed goes into the ground and it dies, but the new life that comes out of it creates a big tree. And Jesus' death and resurrection is that seed. It's the kingdom of God in seed form. Everything that is uh, important and of the essence of God's kingdom is in Jesus. And Jesus goes to the cross and he's killed. He dies there and he's buried just like a seed. And on the third day, he rises from the dead by the power of God and defeats death. Death is no longer an enemy that can keep us because of the cross of Christ. And in his resurrection, this plant sprouts and it grows and it grows. And the kingdom of God has been spreading around the globe for the last 2,000 years, growing in the hearts of men and women and children that have said, I want Jesus. I want that. I want my sins to be forgiven. I want new life. And one day, when Jesus returns, that plant is going to be grown to maturity. And everything that was dormant in that seed is going to be fully sprouted and fully bloomed. And we're all going to be able to participate in that new world with Christ forever. They finish dinner. They sing a hymn. This would have been a traditional psalm at the end of the feast. And they walked out to the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is opposite Jerusalem. It's overlooking Jerusalem. We learn from various places that Jesus and his disciples went there frequently. And then Jesus said to them in verse 31, Tonight all of you will fall away because of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. And Peter told him, Even if everyone falls away because of you, I will never fall away. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, Tonight... Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Even if I have to die with you, Peter told him, I will never deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. Jesus gets done laying out why he's going to the cross. He's going to the cross because that's the only way our sins will be forgiven. That's the only way that the myriad ways that we wrong God and wrong one another can be rectified. And then Jesus lays out some specific ways that the disciples will be sinning tonight. 
He says, you're all going to run away. The Greek word fall away is the word we get scandal from. They're going to be scandalized by Jesus. They're going to be embarrassed by Jesus. He's going to get arrested by the Romans, and they're just going to run. They're going to be afraid, and they're going to betray him. They're going to sin against him. And he just tells them straight up, this is what's going to happen to you guys. And it's really interesting because there are moments, especially on Sunday morning, when I'm, when I'm singing, when I'm praying, when I'm, when I'm listening to the people of God share the word of God, and I just feel so close to Christ. And I think there is no way that sin is even a problem for me because this is such a glorious, beautiful moment. But then Monday comes, and that feeling of closeness, it just kind of goes away. I don't know if any of you have ever felt that way, but you find yourself doing things that you go like, oh man, I can't believe I did that. How did that, how did that possibly happen? I was so close to God just yesterday, and it just felt like His presence was everywhere, and I just loved Him so much, and we were singing, and it was just so beautiful and great, and now... I'm doing this thing or saying these things or treating these people this way and I just, I can't even imagine how that happened. The thing is, Jesus knows you better than you know yourself, right? Jesus tells these men who have just spent this intimate meal of him reshaping their Passover experience and making it about him, they're so close. Everything's so good and beautiful and he says, you know what, you're just gonna go out and you're gonna just totally screw it up in a few minutes. And they're like, no way, that couldn't possibly happen. And he says, no, Peter, this is, <laughs> this is specifically how you're going to screw it up individually. Isn't that beautiful? Like, Jesus is just like so gracious with Peter. Like, look, here's the deal, dude. You're going to deny me three times. When the time comes, when the pressure's on, all this fervor and energy and, and closeness that you f have for me, it's all going to fail. And that's pretty depressing, right? But there's so much grace in that because our salvation, our relationship with God, it's a gift, right? It's, it's not about these things that we think we need to do. It's about what Jesus has done for us on the cross, and notice the insidious lie that the disciples are believing right now. The disciples have just heard about why Jesus is going to the cross. They've experienced it through the meal. They've experienced it with their sense of smell, their sense of touch, their sense of taste. Jesus has connected all their senses to what he's doing on the cross. And the very next thing we read is they don't think they need it. It's this, look, look at what Jesus says. I'm gonna, I'm gonna die for you and you will reap the benefits of it. You will be connected to the benefits of my death, my body and my blood. And what does Peter say? He says, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. Peter says, no, I'm, you're not gonna die for me. I'm gonna die with you. 
I'm going to prove to you how loyal and good I am. I'm going to go to the cross with you. I don't need your sacrifice for me. I'm going to sacrifice myself for you. And then what does Peter get? Peter gets the benefits of that. Peter gets to be the one that says, I, I sacrificed myself for my Messiah, for my King. I don't need you, Jesus. I will do it myself. And I feel like we, we all feel that way sometimes. Maybe we don't feel that way explicitly, but there's just something in us that says, I want to be in charge of my salvation. If I've done something wrong, it's my responsibility to make it right. It's my responsibility to receive the punishment for it. Maybe I need to punish myself for it because it's, it's, it provides, I'm shamed by it. I feel guilt by it. And I need to do a series of uh, good deeds in order to pay it off. Whatever it is for you. We feel like, you know what, I, I'm broken and I need to fix it. But the truth is, I, I have failed God over and over and over again. And I guarantee you I will fail him later today and tomorrow and this week. And there is no way for me to make up for it. There is nothing that I can do to make it better. And that's what Jesus says. And that's the beauty of the gospel that we believe and that we share with the world, that you are hopelessly broken and you cannot fix it. But Jesus fixed it for you. Jesus took the penalty and the punishment for sin. He submitted to a death that he did not have to die so that we would live a life that we don't deserve to live. The centerpiece of our faith as Christians, if you, if you call yourself a Christian, one of the like non-negotiables is the death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus died on the cross. He was murdered by the Romans at the prompting of the Jewish leadership. And on the third day, he miraculously, physically, bodily rose from the dead. And thousands and thousands of pages have been written on what that depth, death accomplished. I have books and books and books about the crucifixion, systematic theologies about grace. And they're great. But every week, we don't get a systematic theology. We get a meal. We get a chance to take the bread and take the cup and touch it, and smell it, and taste it, and bring it into our bodies, just like the disciples did back then, and just like every generation of Christians has for 2,000 years. And I know COVID has made the experience less exciting than it was before we had these uh, hermetically sealed cups. 
But the salvation that we've received in Christ gets taught to us every week through the bread and the cup. And we rehearse this together. We remember together the death of Jesus, Paul says, until he returns, when he's going to share the meal with us again in the kingdom of God. And while all of the theological intricacies of the crucifixion and the resurrection are super interesting and worth studying, there's something about this that I can teach to my children and they can understand without an advanced degree. And I think that's part of why Jesus did it this way. Every week, no matter who you are, no matter what you know, you can have some understanding of what the death and resurrection of Jesus means just by taking the bread, his body, and the cup, his blood, and bringing it into your life and recognizing that it is what is sustaining you. It is what's saving you. It is what's giving you life. And so as we close, just a reminder that Jesus' most detailed description of why he went to the cross is in front of you at this table. And so the band's going to come up and we're going to sing and I'm going to invite you to come and grab the communion elements and take it back to your seat and just take a few moments to let this ritual that we participate in every week teach you something about Jesus' love for you, teach you something about his sacrifice on your behalf, teach you something that you can't learn any other way except through participating in the meal. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.